Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for December 6, 2017. On today's show, we have a bunch of news, including the gaudy biopic controversy, a Slaughterhouse-Five TV series, a War Game TV series reboot, Disney's The Little Mermaid live-action film gets a director, and the first reactions to Paul Thomas Anderson's The Phantom Thread. And in our feature presentation, we'll be taking a look at the pros and cons of Disney's potential acquisition of Fox this is Peter Sorota, and joining me on today's podcast is a panel of most of Slash Film's uh, regular staff, uh, and that includes Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And Slash Film Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Slash Film Writers, Chris Evangelista. Hi. And Hawaii <laughs> Tran Bui. Hey everyone! I, I I think Chris is doing that because uh, one of our readers uh, seemed to like to get pleasure out of the way he normally uh, chimes in in the beginning of the podcast. So uh, yes, so uh, uh, okay. First up in the news, Disney's The Little Mermaid live action quote unquote remake has found a director. Ben, what do we know? Well, we think it's found a director. An offer has gone out to a director, and that director is Rob Marshall, who is the guy who directed uh, Chicago, Memoirs of a Geisha, and Nine. And uh, Disney has reportedly sent out an offer for him to direct the Little Mermaid live-action adaptation. We don't know who's going to star in this movie yet, but we do know <clears throat> excuse me, that Hamilton and Moana's Lin-Manuel Miranda and Disney legend Alan Menken are going to be providing music for the film. So... Uh, Rob Marshall, this is another case of Disney sort of keeping things in the family. Marshall has directed uh, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, Into the Woods, and he's currently in post-production on Mary Poppins Returns, which uh, I think the idea that Marshall is being offered this film sort of bodes well for how Disney thinks about uh, you know Mary Poppins Returns and how well that's going so far. So that's uh, good news, I guess. I'm not crazy about Rob Marshall as a director, and I feel like this would be <clears throat> a good example for or opportunity for Disney to offer 
you know, a female filmmaker, uh, a big, you know, uh, blockbuster movie that's well positioned to make a lot of money and and be successful and potentially launch somebody's career in a bigger way or to to the next level. But uh, but yeah, it looks like they're sticking with the familiar on this one. Is anybody on this podcast a fan of Rob Marshall? I take that as a no. Um, <laughs> it, it just seems weird to me that, you know, there's a, a, a couple, there's like a few select guys that do movie musicals and it seems like they get all the movie musical jobs. Like why, why does like when there's a movie musical, why, why can't they try someone outside of that, you know, small box? Yeah, I don't know. I guess there's a lot of moving parts there. And, you know, studios are famously risk averse. So they're probably I mean, I I understand the mentality of wanting to go with somebody familiar and somebody who's sort of been there before and done this before. But at the same time, like, this is again, this is a great opportunity to sort of spread the wealth a little bit. Um, I, I don't know, I'm a little disappointed in this choice. And again, this offer has gone out. Marshall has not accepted it yet. Apparently, he's going to wait until after the holidays to decide one way or the other. So uh, stay tuned. And also in the news, uh, there's some controversy going on about the gaudy biopic starring John Travolta. It was supposed to be come out, coming out in 10 days, and it seems like it needs a new distributor. HT, what do we know? So Lionsgate has reportedly canceled the release date for Gotti, which was supposed to come out on December 15th. Um, And that's the uh, mob movie starring John Travolta as the infamous head of the Gambino crime family set during the 80s. And um, by the way, Lionsgate, we all we all write about movies for a living. Did any of us know that this movie was coming out in 10 days? I did not. <laughs> I think I, I, was... I saw a trailer but didn't realize that the release date. I, I saw a trailer because it aired online. I've never seen one, uh, you know, on TV or in front of a real movie, at a real movie theater or anything like that. Yeah, I didn't think this movie existed. But uh, go on, HD. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's okay. Uh, so we heard that the studio sold the film back to its producers at uh, Emmett Furla and Oasis Films, and um, that we didn't that it was being shopped around to distributors and was probably going to come out in 2018 instead of 2017. Um, but shortly after that news broke, John Travolta uh, released a statement saying that uh, Lionsgate did not drop. The release per se, but he was unhappy that Lionsgate was giving it such a limited release, and he thought that it deserved a wider one. So he um, teamed up with a new financier, um, Edward Edward uh, Edward Walson, uh, and he is working with him to look for a new theatrical distributor and hopefully get the film a bigger release because he thinks that his performance deserves. Uh, more of an audience Uh, in his words actually in his so many words that he said to deadline so um, it seems like the 2017 release um, was to sort of get the film in the Oscar competition race and maybe get John Travolta a, a bid in the acting nominations because he had some uh he had made a good impression with the um the American, the people versus OJ, American crime story. So I think he was hoping to sort of continue a career reinvigoration with Gotti. But um, I guess that won't happen now that it's going to be coming out in 2018. And uh, maybe this will make Travolta happy, actually. 
And also in the news, Slaughterhouse Five, the TV series, is in the works from Happy Showrunner Jacob. You wrote the story up for the site. What do we know? Well, what we do know is that uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five, which, for the record, is my favorite book of all time, so I take this very personally, is uh, being adapted into a TV series by Universal Cable Productions. There is no network attached, but Patrick McManus, uh, one of the showrunners on Sci-Fi's new series Happy, as well as Netflix's late Marco Polo, is writing and executive producing the series. And Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, a lot of people have read it in high school, uh, or forced read it in high school, which is not the way to read Slaughterhouse-Five. It's a really amazing book. The basic gist of it is that it's a uh, science fiction satire. It's also an uh, anti-war drama. <laughs> it's based on Kurt Vonnegut's actual experiences during World War II, where he survived the firebombing of Dresden. But the book follows Billy Pilgrim, who becomes unstuck in time, and his life begins occurring out of order. So the book flashes between the end of his life, the beginning of his life, and all events in the middle, and he has no control over the order of his life. So it's him living an unhappy marriage in New York, him fighting in World War II, him being a captive of alien creatures in an alien zoo in the distant future. It just jumps between all these really insane locations, and it's, it's Vonnegut, so it's very humanist, it's very personal is very raw it's all about finding um trying to find hope in the darkness and oftentimes failing but trying to hope anyway which is kind of the vonnegut way of life and one that i one that i prescribe to and what we don't know is exactly how you turn a book that's about 275 pages into a ongoing tv show this isn't this isn't game of thrones where there is uh, many books uh, to draw from, even Lord of the Rings, which has all those uh, appendices and histories to transform. It's a one-and-done book. It's a very clear beginning and end. It makes its point and it's done. But McManus has a quote for Variety where he says that they're planning to take all the small suggestions and small details in the book and expand them and build, rebuild the world into a larger series, which makes you think that we're going to see something like Man in the High Castle on Amazon, which takes Philip K. Dick's work and kind of runs with it, doesn't really adapt the book as much as it takes that initial foundation and builds his own thing, which as a Vonnegut fan, I'm like tapping my toe, kind of irritated. <laughs> but as somebody who likes good sci-fi television, I mean, there's a foundation there. Uh, am I the only one here who's read Slaughterhouse-Five? I want to hear other pe people's opinion on this. I have not read it, but this sounds like a fascinating uh, co construct to tell a story. And I, I, I would agree with you. I, I'm betting that they're going to be running with that, the idea of the, you know, maybe the main character and some of the ideas of it. But like really kind of that format is probably going to take center stage. Has anybody else on this podcast read the book? I have not. I have not either. I have. It's great. <laughs> um, I don't uh, I don't I don't know if it'll work as a TV show. Um I guess we'll see. Yeah, I, I think they're going to do approach this the way they made that Minority Report show, where it's it's set within the world that the the book established and sort of going to run with it. But that's just my guess. And it worked out so well for that Minority Report show. Yes, everyone's uh, about it. Yeah. <laughs> and as, speaking of that, let's talk about another uh, TV series reboot. Uh, they're rebooting the 80s classic. Is it a classic? I consider it a classic. War Games as a uh, TV series. Uh, the, you know, hackers are all the rage nowadays because, you know, everything's getting hacked and Mr. Robot is big on you know TV. HD, you wrote this up for the site. There was a trailer. What, what do we know about this new series? 
Not much, really. So I'm going to call it an, a classic film because I have a soft spot in my heart for the uh, original war game starring Matthew Broderick and his floppy-haired goodness. Uh, so the new War Games reboot will be as an experimental interactive series that will be um, shown on the web, the internet, appropriately, because it will be uh, mostly about um, modern espionage, hacking, and government conspiracy. So your daily uh, 2017 life, essentially. Um, so the series is created by uh, MGM and the interactive video company Echo with the Her Story creator, Sam Barlow. Her Story was an acclaimed web series that kind of followed the same format. It was told exclusively through uh, fictional police camera footage or police um, interview footage and uh, was, was explored women's sort of uh, trials and tribulations and how they try to tell their perspectives. So the War Games reboot will kind of follow along those lines in that um, you will be watching through several w windows on your screen and each window shows like a different hacker or a different person who's in this world. And um, you can follow a specific character or and you'll be able to interact with them as well. It's kind of sort of the same premise as uh, Unfriended, that indie horror film that took place exclusively in a video chat room. So the new War, war Games will take place somewhat like that. Otherwise, we don't really know much about it. Um, the teaser is incredibly cryptic and dark, but it does give me, like you said, uh, shades of Mr. Robot. Uh, a lot of it mentions a lot of the real-world hacks, like the Sony hack, uh, the Equifax security breach. So, it's a uh, seems like a very timely series. Yeah, the the trailer kind of sets up the timeliness, and uh, you know, nowadays it's much more believable that someone could actually hack into the government than it probably was, you know, back when war games actually came out. Uh, and I know they've made they made some direct to DVD sequels that were horrible. I'm I'm, I'm kind of sad that you know they aren't going to make a full go at actually making a feature film version of this, but. Uh, do you, does, does anybody else there, Ben? Do, do you have uh, any feelings on the format of the show? Um, I really like the original War Games, and this sounds kind of interesting to me. I've heard uh, really good things about her story. I've never played, or uh, is it like a game or a, a web series? I'm not really sure where the it's, line is drawn there. But it's a game, because uh, I think it's through Microsoft, but it's also sort of like a movie in a way. Yeah, it's six so, episodes uh, long. Yeah, so uh, I can I've explain never... her story if you want that real quick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, HG sort of ran down the the basic part of it, but go ahead. Well, her story is this really interesting interactive game where the basic gist of it is you're looking at a bunch of video files and there's no direct story, there's no direct narrative. You start searching the files. You can search for any phrases that appear in the dialogue. You can search for any key words. And you just start watching all these random video clips and you eventually find the story. It's like a four, hour, four to maybe five hour experience. And it's, not, it's all live action footage uh, shot for the game, but there's no actual branching narrative it's up to you to kind of solve a mystery it's very much more a game than it is a movie or a tv series so that's it's a very interesting thing i wouldn't i wouldn't, even, I wouldn't call it a great game but it's a very interesting game and I, I don't know if that's a new genre or not but it's certainly something that's worth thinking about and talking about yeah, it does seem like this interactive uh, experiences. We talked about uh, the other day, Ben was talking about, what was that? Um, 
mosaic mosaic yeah so there it seems like there's more of these it's just interesting you know from war games i, I kind of want like you know some action and this trailer kind of shows some people in front of their computers and i assume that it's going to be cheaply made with you know webcams like you know ht says and uh it looks very uh you know, it looks very much like, you know, those original web series, like uh, Lonely Girl, if you remember that. Um, it, it kind of brings to mind, and it, I don't know, I don't think that's pushing what we can do with this medium. But, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, we'll have to see. Uh, moving on to our last bit of news, the first uh, reactions to Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread have hit the web. Um I saw the film. Has anybody else here seen Phantom Thread? Chris has. Yes, I have. Sorry. I yes. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I'll give yeah. you my reaction first because my reaction is probably going to be the most negative. Um, and that is that it is uh, it is perverse. It is um, it's about kind of uh, the compromises you make uh, in in a relationship. Uh, the acting is incredible. The score by Johnny Greenwood is fantastic. The uh, production dis- design is exquisite. Uh, but in the end, um, which, by the way, I really hate the end of this movie. You'll see when you see it. Uh, in the end, I uh, it's not a movie for my tastes. Uh, and I'm kind of left uh, wanting, uh, you know, more of the older Paul Thomas Anderson movies. But I think people are going to love this. So, Chris, what did you think of this movie? Uh, I loved it. Um, I, I love the ending, too. I'm surprised you didn't like the ending. The ending actually was one of my favorite parts because it took me completely by surprise. Uh, and that's all I'll say. I won't give anything away. But it was a lot funnier than I thought it was going to be. This is basically a very dark comedy and that's not how it's being sold at all. The the trailers make it look like this sort of like stuffy costume drama. And that's really not what it is. Uh, It's a lot funnier. It's a lot darker than the trailers are letting on, but I'll have more to say in my review on slashfilm.com, which will probably be up tomorrow. So look for that. Everyone. And, and HT, you did a roundup of the reactions. Uh, it, where are people following on this on this film? Um, it's basically universal praise. I think that everyone is uh, universal in their praise, at least of Daniel Day Lewis, of newcomer Vicky Creeps. I think that's how you say your name. And um, they're calling this one of Paul Thomas Anderson's masterpieces. So it's definitely up there with his. Uh, great streak of films. I don't think he's had a real, real bad film yet. Although um, I guess we've had this debate before on our on our podcast. Um, but uh, like you said, Chris, it's my impression of it was that it was a stuffy period piece. But there are um, a lot of critics calling it perverse, kinky, a gothic romance. Definitely something that's uh, a big 180 than what you'd expect from the trailers. So. Um, I've seen the word perverse thrown around about three times by three <laughs> critics. So that was really exciting for me. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot of people have been comparing it to mother in sort of the themes that it follows about relationships and the sacrifices for the relationships. Like you said, uh, it's been on at least four or five year end um, best of 2017 lists. So it's definitely a film that you should not miss. I will read uh, a couple of the uh, samples of people's uh, crit- uh, 
people's reactions to it. So this is from uh, the New York Times. Two lives and two perversities become one in this ravishingly beautiful, often unexpectedly funny film, which traces the relationship between an eminent couture designer and his younger surprising muse. It's a story about love and about work, and finally as much about its own creation as the romance on screen. And that is basically the gist of every other um, reaction to it. Yeah, I don't Uh, don't think you have to read any more. I think uh, people probably get the idea um, this is going to be a a long show, so we should probably get right into our feature presentation, which is talking about this potential Disney Fox uh, acquisition. Uh, You know, we've been talking in the past on the site and on the podcast about Disney's plans to acquire assets from 21st Century Fox, which includes movies, TV shows, uh, possibly even the 20th Century Fox brand. Um, and we, we, we've given our first reactions to that when that news first hit. The talks are back on. Some people seem to think it could happen by the end of this week. It, the, the acquisition could actually go through. Um, but... Uh, I, I guess I, I wanted to on on the site we we came together and wrote this uh, fantastic group article, kind of weighing the pros and the cons of this potential uh, acquisition. And I I wanted to bring this to the podcast. So I guess let's let's start with uh, one of the positive HT. So the biggest positive that people have been trotting out for this uh, Disney. 20th Century Fox merger is that the X-Men and Fantastic Four characters who are under 20th Century Fox after Marvel sold the movie rights to their characters in the 90s uh, could finally join the MCU. So this has been a source of frustration for many fans of uh, the Avengers and X-Men and Fantastic Four who want to see their favorite characters on the big screen and uh, of confusion for general audiences who have have to deal with two Quicksilvers, for example. So it's it's an ex- exciting prospect and would definitely expand the Marvel Universe beyond anything we could have imagined. Um, and who knows where it could go after in Avengers 4, too. So this could be a new chance to start with to, to put in more X-Men and put in more Fantastic Four and finally maybe get a good Fantastic Four movie. Almost all the positive that I've been seeing online has been basically superhero related, which uh, I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with superhero movies, but there's more to movies than superhero movies. That said, uh, Fox just recently started sort of stepping outside their comfort zone and making darker, more challenging superhero movies, especially with uh, like a film like Logan, which is, really not like anything that's in Disney's MCU at all. And I kind of have a feeling that if Disney buys Fox, they're not going to want to make movies like that. Disney doesn't really want to go that dark. They want to make films for everyone because that's the best way to make the most money. So it just seems like just when we're finally getting started with superhero movies stepping out of their comfort zone, they might step right back into it. And, uh, you know, that's not the last of the superhero discussion. Jacob has a little bit to add. This is actually a really small niche thing. It's actually almost silly, but I think it's worth bringing up. That is, ever since the Marvel movies released by Disney started becoming increasingly successful, you started noticing that the X-Men and Fantastic Four characters started being pushed to sidelines in the comics. Like, the Fantastic Four was disbanded. The X-Men essentially, essentially had their own pocket universe in the comics. They don't interact with the main cast of the Marvel Universe. Like, you don't see them at all. And 
taking their place has been the Inhumans. And if you read up on this, a lot of this has to do with the fact that the people ho- holding the purse spring, springs, uh, purse strings at Marvel are the people saying, why should we release comic books that are an advertisement for uh, our competitors' movies? Which is misunderstanding what comic books are, but I'll, that, that's, the, that's the reading that people are having on this. And so the Inhumans have been pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed in the comics, in the comics, in the comics. Everywhere there'd be an X-Man normally, there's an Inhuman now. And that led to the Inhumans TV show that premiered a few months ago that nobody watched and is a disaster. And if Disney has the X-Men again, it has the weird ripple effect of, oh, we can allow the X-Men and Fantastic Four back in our comics. So <laughs> even though they originate in the comics and are a vital building block for this entire comic book universe... It won't be until they're actually being made into Disney movies again that comic fans can actually see these characters treated with respect and the Inhumans kind of put back in the background where, honestly, where they belong. Because over the past five years, I've read so many bad Inhuman comics that were attempting to sort of relaunch them as the new X-Men. So like I said, a little thing, it's a nerdy thing, and there are things on this list that matter a whole lot more, but it's something to think about. And uh, as as we said, superhero films are not uh, the, the the whole thing here. Uh, they're also you know acquiring a library of TV shows, past, and, uh, present, and future. Um, I get, Ben, you have a thought on the TV show side of side of things. Yeah, sort of similarly to uh, what Chris was talking about with the potential loss of you know audacious R-rated uh, superhero movies, could come a similar loss to sort of edgy, more mature TV shows. So the specific details of this acquisition are still not entirely clear, but earlier reports have suggested that maybe um, TV brands like FX and FXX could also be transferred over to Disney in the sale. So if that happens, I can't imagine that Disney would be okay with something like American Horror Story or Legion airing on one of its networks. For the same reasons that Chris mentioned, they're very much... Um, using a shotgun blast approach to reaching as wide an audience as possible. And uh, the idea of these very specific sort of um, edgy and mature shows uh, does, does not strike me like something that, um, that Disney would be interested in, in keeping on board. And uh, obviously, you know, Fox is looking to get rid of a lot of things, but one of the uh, two of those things that they're looking to keep are the news and sports. And you also think that there's a negative to that. Right. Yeah. So this whole thing, this deal is uh, estimated at a value of like 60 billion dollars. So that's how much Disney would be paying Fox for the movie studio, some of these TV uh, assets, things like this. So the problem with that that I see is that. That would basically mean that Fox, who has, as you just said, is definitely interested in putting more of a focus on news and sports, is going to be investing that $60 billion in news. And that means Fox News. And as we all know, I mean, I don't need to get into what Fox News is and does, but anyone listening to this knows, I'm sure, um, that their coverage is like wildly skewed and I'll just leave it at that. But just the idea of... Ben, they're fair and balanced. They're fair and balanced, Ben. (laughs) The idea of of the people behind Fox News having $60 billion more to pump into uh, promoting and, and, you know, whatever their bizarre slant on reality is... Um, is pretty terrifying to me, especially with what's going on right now and and how uh, we have other you know elections coming up soon. And if people aren't informed, 
then they can't make proper decisions. So it's a it's a scary thing. One thing I haven't seen really any article talk about is uh, the Hulu aspect of this, because you might not know, but Hulu was started by a bunch of major uh, companies, one of which is Disney, who owns a 30% stake in Hulu. Fox owns a 30% stake in Hulu. So with Disney purchasing Fox, they would essentially, they could essentially own 60% of Hulu. What does that mean for the future of Hulu? I don't know. Uh, you know, obviously, Disney wants to start their own premium streaming service. So you would think that they wouldn't need Hulu, but uh, maybe uh, maybe they want to, you know, keep, you know, there's there's I think Hulu is making revenues of over a billion dollars. So maybe there's some money to be made there and maybe they want to keep, you know, the last few episodes of the latest network TV shows on there uh, for people to uh, see ads and make money. So it might not be the death of Hulu. And the other thought I had is maybe. Uh, maybe Disney is uh, acquiring this so that they could uh, basically use the technology that has gone into Hulu. If you think about this, you know, Hulu has been uh, around for, you know, what, like almost the last decade. And, um, you know, the technology that has gone into that streaming service, it has been able to handle, handle a demand like any other, like no other streaming service. And I'm sure if, you know, Disney is making their own streaming service. They could use the bones of that uh, for their own purposes. So, so maybe, maybe there's that. So it's unclear how Hulu will uh, figure into this uh, equation. Uh, but moving on from Hulu, let's talk about uh, Fox movies and shows on Disney's upcoming streaming service. Ben, you have some thoughts on this. Sort of along those same lines, um, if if they were to acquire Fox and all of the properties that we assume would come along with that, the library of, of Fox's entire archive, that would definitely um, increase the value, make it a better value for consumers who choose to subscribe to their upcoming streaming service. So we talked on a recent episode of Slash Film Daily about how many uh, streaming services are too many and what they would have to do to get us to subscribe. And I know that a live action Star Wars TV series is probably enough to convince a lot of people. But for anyone who happens to be, you know, still on the fence about that, um, the notion of being able to access not only Disney's whole back catalog, but also Fox's um, definitely, you know, makes a better deal and, and might be enough to sort of move the needle for um, for Disney on getting people to sign up for that subscription service. Now let's let's go from TV back to the the movie theater. Uh, you know, Disney already has too many movies to promote. Well, what is you know owning another studio going to do to this equation, Ben? Yeah, so that that's one of the big things that I am a little worried about. I feel like um, you know Disney art already has uh, Lucasfilm, Marvel, and Pixar to contend with, plus their own sort of Walt Disney Studios or Walt Disney Pictures releases. So there's a lot to put out over the course of a calendar year. And I feel like Disney is already sort of fighting with themselves on some of these release dates with like, I think the um, the release date for the new Indiana Jones movie got moved because some other competing Disney movie was coming out around that time or something. So the thought is that Disney wouldn't want to release multiple uh, movies that it owns in the same window because that theoretically they could cannibalize the box office 
and uh, you know each individual movie would not make as much money. So if you take all of the movies that Disney is already releasing and then add all of the ones that Fox would be bringing to the table as well, Fox I think released 14 movies this year or will by the time the end of the year is is done. That's a lot of movies, and it's just a really, really crowded calendar. And I'm worried that Disney is going to just start cutting down on the number of projects that they greenlight as a whole because they have so much stuff to to get out there to people and not uh, not enough calendar months to do it. And we know Disney is all about these big budget epic event films. Uh, Chris, could this pose a problem to mid budget films? Yeah, I think it could. Uh, you know, there was a time when Hollywood, you know, big Hollywood studios were fine releasing lots and lots of mid-budget films. I mean, a great example is The Exorcist. That movie cost like $11 million to make, which is nothing compared to, you know, what people spend on movies now. And, you know, there are still, you know, a few mid-budget movies, but more and more, it seems like everything that has that comes out now is a big event film. Everything has to be a big event. And Disney certainly doesn't seem to have any interest in making smaller movies right now. So if they purchase Fox, I really doubt they're going to want to use that brand to, you know, make even smaller films. They're want to they're going to want to return on that investment. And just, so they're just going to need to either go big or go home. Uh, you know, I, I'm a little I'm trying to be more optimistic here. I know that's uh, a negative, but I would. I honestly believe that Disney isn't buying 20th Century Fox just for their library of films and TV. I would think that they want to, you know, turn that Fox brand into something for them. And I, I would think that they wouldn't want to, you know, just turn it into another Disney. So I would think that they would more than likely um, that the Mouse House would want to turn 20th Century Fox into a more adult branded entertainment arm of the company. Uh, they could produce comment, content uh, aimed more towards, you know, adults and be outside of that Disney brand. Uh, Disney used to do this with Touchstone Pictures. Uh, you can remember uh, Wes Anderson. Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaum, you know, his early films, big films were released by Disney through Touchtones. So perhaps, you know, maybe I'm being optimistic here, but perhaps Disney could use Fox to release more low and mid-budget films, allowing for more interesting non-franchise films, uh, you know. Looking at the that release calendar, as Ben kind of mentioned, it's clear that Disney is already competing with itself in the big event and franchise film department. It doesn't make much sense for Fox uh, to use Fox for a similar purpose and cannibalize its own audience at the multiplex. So, uh, you know, I kind of like the idea that they they would use the studio as a place for interesting stories and new filmmakers to shine. But maybe I am being a little bit optimistic. Um, another point uh, that came up to me was uh, Disney will finally own full rights to Star Wars New Hope. Um, when Disney acquired Lucasfilm, the company bought rights to nearly all of Star Wars, but they were still forced to share distribution rights, creative decisions, and profits with George Lucas's original film Star Wars Episode for A New Hope with Fox. And if Disney were to acquire Fox, that would mean that the studio would own all of Star Wars for the first time ever. Uh, what this would mean is unclear. Uh, some believe that Fox's ownership in A New Hope is a sticking point preventing Disney from releasing the original theatrical cut of 
the film, the non-special edition. Uh, it could mean that the beloved 20th Century Fox fanfare might be restored uh, to the past and future Star Wars films. That could be neat. Um but uh, I don't know. Um, and the other uh, thing that hit me is in the animation department, you know, Fox has Blue Sky Studios. What is going to happen to Blue Sky Studios is unclear. I would think it's probably going to be a negative. Uh, you know, but I'm not a fan of Blue Sky Studios films, but, uh, you know, many people love those Ice Age and Rio films. I know the Peanuts movie got some critical acclaim. Uh, but, you know, Fox owns this animation studio, and if Disney is acquiring that as part of this, which we don't know is the case, you know, they already have Pixar. They all already have Walt Disney Animation Studios. They have Disney Toons. Uh, are they going to need another animation studio? And, um, you know, in, in in the theme park side of things, uh, I don't want to see, um, you know, Ice Age and Rio rides in Disneyland. Okay, the theme the theme park fan in myself uh, does not want to see that happen. So, uh, but uh, on the other side of the theme park thing, Disney is gaining ownership of Avatar. You know, they just built Pandora, the World of Avatar, in Orlando. There's rumors that they might build one overseas, and now that they own all of Avatar, uh, you know, Jim uh, James Cameron's uh, film franchise, it kind of uh, means that they, you know, they own that part of you know, they own all parts of that aspect, which is is kind of cool, I guess. Um, on the negative of that, Disney gains ownership of properties already in competing theme parks. So, like, um, you know, The Simpsons is in Universal theme parks. And if they acquired, uh, you know, the library of The Simpsons uh, cartoons and movies or movie, uh, you know, they would not be able to bring them to their theme parks. And actually, they would have another theme park. Uh, you know, a competing theme park being using their properties. And, you know, this isn't the first time this has happened to, Mar- uh, to, to Disney. They, this happened with Marvel. Uh, when they acquired Marvel, Universal owned rights to a lot of the core Marvel characters in uh, their Orlando theme parks, a lot, uh, making it impossible for Marvel or for Disney to put a lot of the Marvel characters in their theme parks uh, east of the Mississippi. Yeah, east of the Mississippi. Um <laughs> Uh, so, uh, I mean, that, that, that is a bit of a, a, a problem, but I mean, you know, let's, let's get back to kind of the serious stuff here and the serious stuff, uh, for the serious stuff, I go to Jacob Paul. Well, you say serious. I think some people may roll their eyes at this, but it means a lot to me. And I think to people who are big fans of Hollywood history, and that's just a simple fact that 20th Century Fox has been around since 1935. It's, it was there during the early days of Hollywood. It there in golden age. It weathered the days of the 60s when everyone thought Hollywood was going to die in the face of television. It was there during the research into the 70s. It's been here through all of this. And the horror stories and tall tales and legends come out of 20th Century Fox. Uh, I mean, this is a bad word to use, but it's magical. It, like I look back at Hollywood history, and it's magical to me. This is stuff that I relish and love to learn. And... The, 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 and Peter can talk about this more if he wants to, but the 20th Century Fox lot is one of the more legendary lots in the film industry. And just the thought of all of that being absorbed because oh, someone signed some checks, it bums me out. I mean, there's no other better way to put it. It makes me sad to see this piece of Hollywood history, this old school Hollywood studio, the, the, the kind of that this couldn't get started today. The kind of thing that only can begin in 1935. Just seeing that possibly get wiped away 
or absorbed by another studio, it just makes me sad. And I think it makes a lot of people sad. And that's before you get to all the other negatives that we'll, we've discussed and we get to. Potential job losses, few places to pitch movies. It, it, the nostalgia, nostalgic side of me um, would just be deeply unsettled by something as important and long running and established as this just being gone. But hey, that's that maybe that's silly. I don't know. We get to our last and most important negative. Uh, let's get to one last positive. Uh, HT, what does uh, what could this possibly mean about uh, in terms of diversity? So Disney has had a great track record recently with diversity in front of and behind the camera. We've been seeing more stories from Disney and Disney um, sub sub studios uh, showcasing stories about diversity, such as uh, Moana, Queen of Catsway, Zootopia. And then we're seeing directors like Ava DuVernay uh, helming huge blockbuster adaptations of A Wrinkle in Time. So we are seeing, and recently we, at Pixar, we saw the authentic Coco, which was a really wonderful sort of uh, a genuine depiction of Mexico and Mexican culture. And Lucasfilm, too, has been making more of an ostensible um, outreach towards diversity with really great diverse leads in the Star Wars movies. And, uh, of course, we've seen Marvel with their really with their diverse roster of superheroes even though they don't really have the leads be as diverse as their supporting characters um they still have had a great track record in terms of diversity um so this would be a wonderful sort of turnaround i guess since hollywood has been hit um over and over recently with sexual harassment cases and boys club mentality so if disney uh, sort of trickles down their diversity efforts this could mean good things for more flicks in the future. Just films, but television. But, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I hinted before at that la- one last negative, and this is probably the one that I think occurs to most of us when we think about this uh, this potential deal. And that is, you know, Disney is one step closer to becoming a huge monopoly. HT, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so this is the aspect that really unsettles me the most because uh, now Disney has Marvel, Lucasfilm, Pixar under their belt. And if they'll have 20th Century Fox, that means they'll have a whopping four studios. And that will put them with only four other competitors in the movie industry, which are Warner Brothers, Paramount, Universal, and Sony, uh, most of which rely on TV for the most of the, for the majority of their revenue. So it's, it's not quite bode well in terms of uh, the variety and of movies that we'll see from various studios in the future, most like I think about a third of those films will probably be under the Disney wing, essentially. And um, we've kind of touched on this before with maybe a loss in mid-budget movies, uh, but it also could have more intimidating, intimidating implications for how Disney will wield that power. So recently we saw, um, for example, with the LA Times, they published a really incisive investigation into Disney's uh, business practices in Anaheim, 
in their Anaheim, California theme parks. And Disney retaliated by blacklisting LA Times critics out of screenings from all Disney films, which is completely unrelated to the Anaheim story. So after controversy um, and backlash, they stepped back from that. But we've seen other issues such as Disney strong arming theaters into giving the company 65% of ticket sales for the Star Wars Last Jedi um, box office. And, um, you know, John Lasseter thrived for years in the sort of system that aided his sexual harassment of female employees or alleged sexual harassment, I'm sorry. Um, So this is only now when Disney has three studios under their wing, but what could they be capable of with a third of the movie industry uh, under their um, jurisdiction? And I know I mentioned this when we were talking about John Lasseter the other day, but like imagine you are a female animator in Hollywood, uh, you know, that wants to work in the United States, um, you know, and something happened that was bad to you in Disney. Maybe it's not John Lasseter, maybe it's something else, someone else, someone in power. Are you going to speak up now that they, you know, already they own Pixar, Walt Disney Animation, uh, Disney Tunes, but then they own Blue Sky Animation? Like, there's no place for you to go. It's a, it's kind of a scary situation to be in. Um, and, you know, still no one has come up on record to talk about, you know, uh, to say anything against John Lasseter. It's all been kind of off the record comments that people have been publishing, which is, you know, scary in itself that, uh, you know, that we can't find anybody to go on record or, you know, that big uh, newspapers can't find anybody to go on record. Does, does anybody else have any other final thoughts on, on this whole acquisition talk? I think we covered it. <laughs> yeah, I think we covered pretty fully. Um, you know, lastly at the en- end of the podcast, I like to you know have everybody s- say where they can find you, but there's just too many people on this podcast to do that <laughs> today. So, you know, go to slashfilm.com. You can find all of our work on slashfilm. You can find the articles we wrote uh, on slashfilm. This, uh, this whole piece about the pros and cons of the potential Disney Fox acquisition. We have a whole piece on this on slashfilm.com. So, uh, you know, share that with your friends. It has more than what we uh, got to here in, in, in that piece. And it really, you know, has uh, writing from almost all of the slash film staff, uh, minus uh, Bradford Omen. Uh, so, yeah, um, you know, check that out. You can uh, find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, Go to iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review. That helps us out. Spread the word on social media. Spread that, you know, take that article about uh, Disney and Fox and, you know, send it to your friends. That, That helps us out quite a bit. And we will see you tomorrow.